Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Civilian Podcast. I'm Jeremy. I'm Hike. And what are we talking about today, Jeremy? Today, today's topic is the fall of the middle class. Mm, the good stuff. Getting into the goodies. Yeah. Yeah. Bringing back the dark ages. Yeah. So during that time period, the rise of the middle class, you have this idea that something gave them their power. Mm-hmm. And that was the Industrial Revolution. And so you created merchants out of the peasant class. They rivaled the, the power of the feudalist system. We're going to go back to this type yeah. of uh, scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also with that kind of, uh, because the middle class uh, class was better off, they were making more offspring, so they were the population grew too, became a big problem. Now, kind of with the middle class going away, we're going to see how that also becomes a right. problem too, right? Yep. You need to reduce the population because there's a lot of useless eaters. Yeah, so I guess before we start, uh, we'll do our uh, regular house cleaning, yep. you know. Thanks for all the, the views, the likes, the subscribes, mm-hmm. the shares, the comments. Especially the shares. Yeah, it yeah. means a lot. Um, some people like the notes. Some people don't like the notes. Mm-hmm. We figure out that there's more that like them than not. Yeah. And so, so I guess we'll go with this until something new pops out, right? Yeah. So for, for, for the more complicated stuff, I think the notes are good. Mm-hmm. For, for the more conversational stuff that we'll get into later, um, we can switch back to like the, the wider mm-hmm. the wider angle. Yeah, just I guess to uh, lay down the our plan kind of comes down to there's a lot of backlog of information that we wanted to get out first mm-hmm. and then we will start covering more like uh currentish events w- why why are we in the position where stuff like this is uh, happening right. and most of it is going to refer back to this so we wanted to make sure we have all this out because uh, it shows the system being built right and right. then uh it's going to be a lot easier to understand right all we're doing is just bringing the data to you and um again like we say bring all the data to the table let the rational person make the decision right right um so with that, I mean, um, the iconic label.com for mm-hmm. support, um, hoodies, hats, and t-shirts for each of the corresponding podcasts. Um, uh, you can support us on patreon.com slash the iconic podcast for whatever monthly contribution you can make. Um, each contribution helps immensely. So we appreciate those that have, have supported us in the past and those that may support us in the future. Thank you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else? Um, yeah, we're everywhere. If you want to find us, uh, Instagram now, we're going to start posting a little bit more, even smaller snippets on right. Instagram in the form of like real or TikTok and all that stuff too. So you can get like more bite-sized uh, versions of it, more shareable. And then we also have the uh, iconic highlights on YouTube where again, some of these long podcasts in somewhere around eight to 12 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, more like topic by topic, some of the questions just by themselves. So it's easier for you to keep um, track of, or again, if you want to keep it for later reference or share them too. Right. So. Yep. Um, are we ready to get into yeah, it? Yeah, I think okay. so. Okay, let's get into it. So now, um, we, we've said that the that the new world order is nothing but the old world order 2.0. And so how did the king, the queen, the emperor maintain control and power back in the feudalistic system under the old world order? Well, by three things. They had uh, manageable, pop- manageable population sizes. Uh, of those population sizes, many of the people were uneducated or illiterate. And they were uninvolved in their political affairs. They had no participation in their political future. And so this is how it's going to be during the global state. Mm-hmm. Um, this is how they're going to maintain I, power. I was going to say that was me up until maybe like 16 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Uneducated and not participating in my... Uh, yeah. yep, that, that's where most of us are, right? So, and so this is how the global state is going to maintain power as well. And so it's a limited world population, a population of uneducated, indifferent, or disinterested, or dumbed down um, uh, citizens that cannot play a role 
and their political future. And, and so that, you know, the last piece of not being able to play a role, it's going to be because it's, it's going to fall into this idea of like you're, you're owning nothing and, and you'll be happy. Um, and the state will p- provide everything for you. Mm-hmm. And you have the unelected bodies of unelected officials making decisions. And so you're cut off from the decision-making process. And so um, there, there's a, a new difference, though, a key difference that's actually the, the, the makeup of the population itself. So this new population will be a modified population. It won't be able to revolt in the future. The idea is that the New World or 2.0 will be future-proof. This is the idea, right? So through technology. Because mm-hmm. they, they know that revolutions were the ones that kind of got rid of the, the monarchies and all that stuff, right? So you have to prevent that because once, if you're going to build another monarch... Uh, if, uh, if you're building back better... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to make sure that you learn from your first mistakes. Right. Which, not mistakes, but it was by design, right? Yeah. Now you know what the weak spots are. Yeah. Right. If people get together and decide that whatever you say doesn't go anymore, then it doesn't go anymore. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And so to do this, you have to control the actual, the genetic makeup of the human population and modify it in a way that, you know, you can control going forward. You know, you're going to control it by, by, by what different ways? Well, by what it eats. You're going to change the flora in its gut to only eat the food that you provided to eat. You're going to... You're going to change it at a DNA level, and so uh, so that you'll literally own the DNA of this population, and then you're going to control what it can, how it basically its breeding potential, what how it can breed, if it can breed, if the reasons for why it's allowed to breed, and so in other words, you must uh, you have to be able to hack humanity in order to do this, mm-hmm. right? And so now, well, how would you hack humanity? And so Yuval Harari, in speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos 2020, gives us the equation for for how you hack humanity. He says B times C times D equals A. And what is that? Well, B is biological knowledge. C is computing power. D is data. Then AHH is the ability to hack humans. And so he says, if you know enough biology and you have enough computing power and data, you can hack uh, my body and my brain, my life, and you can understand me better than I can understand myself. He says, you can know my personality type, my political views, my sexual preferences, my mental weaknesses, my deepest fears and hopes. You know more about me than I know about myself. He continues and says, and you can know that not just about me, but about Everyone, a system that understands us better than we understand ourselves can predict our feelings and our decisions and manipulate our feelings and our decisions and can ultimately make decisions for us. And so he says, in the past, many tyrants and governments wanted to do it, but nobody understood biology good enough or well enough. And nobody had enough computing power and data to hack millions of people. I like that he used the word tyrants. Yeah. (laughs) And so he continues and says, Uh, But soon, at least some corporations and governments will be able to systematically hack all the people. And the kicker, we humans should get used to this idea that we are no longer mysterious souls. We are now hackable animals. In another speech entitled, Will the Future Be Human? Yuval Harari, speaking at the World Economic Forum again, says, um, he says, well, we are probably one of the last generations of Homo sapiens. Within a century or two, Earth will be dominated by entities that are more different from us than we are different from Neanderthals or from chimpanzees. Because in the coming generations, we will learn how to engineer bodies and brains and minds that will, well, they'll be main products in the economy of the 21st century, 
uh, not textiles and vehicles and weapons, but bodies and brains and minds. So like human 3.0, I guess, at this point, right? There you yeah. go. Yep. <laughs> and so he continues and says, now, how exactly will the future uh, masters of the planet look like? This will be decided by the people who own the data and whose control of the data, uh, whoever controls the data, controls the future, not just of humanity, but the future of life itself. Yeah, and again, if we go back to one of the quotes, which says, you'll own nothing <laughs> and you'll be happy. And here we have a, a conversation of owning something, right? right. So we already disqualified. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so now think about it. And so now we have here. Uh, so, so this is why Elon Musk was willing to pay overpay for Twitter because of all the data associated with it, not to save the rights of free speech for people in a dying nation state. No, he wanted to give me my free speech back, Jeremy. No, no. <laughs> and so now you Dang go, what? Well, wow. So, so if data is the uh -huh. new asset, it's the new currency, it's the new thing that's, it's the new gold. Uh -huh. Um, then this is why uh, people would position themselves in a certain way to to be able to be the inheritors mm -hmm. of all that coming future wealth based on these ideas. And so he provides us a history lesson and he says, uh, today data is the most important asset in the world. And in ancient times, land was the most important asset. And if too much land became concentrated into too few, to too few hands of humanity split into aristocrats and commoners and in the modern age in the last two centuries machinery replaced land and you know most important asset uh, and if, if too many of the machines became concentrated into too few hands humanity split into classes and you know capitalists and proletariats or proletarians uh, now data is replacing machinery as the most important asset and if too much of the data becomes concentrated in too few hands humanity will split not into two classes two different species oh, so it's not even like uh hey you're still a human but you're a little bit lower class or you're you know you're a peasant you're serving you just what i'm trying to think i want to see if they want to keep the title of human for themselves or that would be given to uh so the the lower level get human and then they get some other title for right, themselves. right yeah. yeah that's interesting mm -hmm. so you know that reminds me of the movie elysium where uh -huh. they leave uh, the the elite live in this uh, artificial environment mm -hmm. that was created while the earth is kind of going to hell in the handbasket, mm -hmm. so to speak. So, uh, so this would be known as the this is the transhumanist dream to mm -hmm. transcend what it means to be human and merge with technology. And then he tells us uh, something else important. He says, uh, "Why is data so important? Well, it's because uh, we've reached the point where we can hack not just the computers." But we can hack human beings and other organisms. Well, what, what do you need to hack a human being? Well, he says, uh, what do you need in order to hack a human being? You need two things. You need a lot of computing power and you need a lot of data, especially biometric data. Not data about what you know I buy or where I go, but data about what is happening inside my body, inside my brain. How was all this made possible? He says, well, because two simultaneous revolutions here we're getting back to the mm -hmm. revolutions are always the things that make the, the mechanism for change because on the one hand advances in computer science and especially the rise of machine learning and ai 
are giving us the necessary computing power and at the same time advances in biology and especially in brain science are giving us the necessary biological understanding. He says, you can really summarize 150 years of biological research since Charles Darwin into three words. Organisms are algorithms. He says, uh, this is the, the big insight of the modern life sciences that organisms are really just biochemical algorithms and we are learning how to decipher these algorithms. And so, well, what happened when these two revolutions merge? And so now we're going to bring, you know, uh, Klaus uh, Schwab back mm -hmm. in here. He says, now, when these two revolutions will merge, um, when the infotech revolution merges with the biotech revolution, that's Klaus Schwab's fourth industrial revolution, you get this ability to now hack the human being or hack humans. Uh, what was the most important invention during these uh, revolutions? He says, and maybe the most important invention for the merger of the infotech and biotech is the biometric sensor that translates biochemical processes in the body in the brain into electronic signals <laughs> <laughs> that a computer can store and analyze what can you do with this type of data he says and once you have enough uh, enough such biometric information and enough computing power you can create algorithms that know me better than i know myself and humans really don't know themselves uh, very well this is why algorithms have a real chance of getting to know ourselves better we do not really know ourselves well what's next then well he says once we have the once we have algorithms that can understand me better than i can understand myself uh, they could predict my desires, manipulate my emotions, and make decisions on my behalf. Yeah. Are there any risks? He says, um, if we're not careful, the outcome might be the rise of digital dictatorships. Oh, wow. mm. Well, what, is, what does all that mean? Well, he says, in the 21st century, new technological revolutions, especially AI and machine learning, might swing the pendulum in the opposite direction that might... Uh, make centralized data processing far more efficient than distributing data processing. And so, well, if that happens, uh, 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 what happens if democracies can't keep up? You know, as if democracies matter. <laughs> and if democracies cannot adapt to these new conditions, then humans will come to live under the rule of digital dictatorships so they're saying we have to be careful that that doesn't happen. But if it happens, then you kind of you have no choice. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because this the he says the society is going to split into a different species mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. that point. Right. And so, well, where are these digital dictatorships that you're talking about? He says uh, we are seeing the formation of more and more sophisticated surveillance regimes throughout the world, not just by author authoritarian regimes, but by democratic governments. The United States, for example, is building a global surveillance system, while my home country of Israel is trying to build a total surveillance regime mm -hmm. in the West Bank. Australia is doing the same thing too. Canada is doing the same thing too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uniformly across mm -hmm. the world at the same time coincidence no <laughs> uh, yeah of course so besides a digital dictatorship is there anything else that's uh that's more radical ahead he says but control of data may enable human elites to do something even more radical than to build a digital dictatorship by hacking organisms and so we asked the question well what might they do please tell us he says mm -hmm. elites might gain the power to re-engineer the future of life itself because once you can hack something you can usually also engineer it and if indeed we succeed in hacking 
In engineering life, this will be not just the greatest revolution in human or the history of humanity. This will be the greatest revolution in biology since the very beginning of life four billion years ago. And so he says, if that happens, you know, well, what's next? Well, science is replacing evolution by natural selection with evolution by intelligent design, not the intelligent design of some god above the clouds, but our intelligent design and the intelligent design of our clouds, like the IBM cloud, the Microsoft cloud. These are the new driving forces of evolution. Now, these are blasphemous mm-hmm. statements, uh, but we'll continue. We'll keep that for God, King, Father, friend. Yeah. We will, right? <laughs> so he continues, uh, may enable life after being confined for 4 billion years to the limited realm of organic compounds, since uh, may enable life to break out of this inorganic com- into inorganic compounds. So, uh, after four billion years of organic life shaped by natural selection, we are entering into an, an, an inorganic life shaped by intelligent design. Mm. And so he says, uh, this is why the ownership of data is so important. If we don't regulate it, uh, there's the regulation mm-hmm. part, right? A tiny elite may come to control not just the future of human societies, but shape of life forms in the future. Mm-hmm. And so, well, who's going to own this data? He says, so uh, does the data about my DNA, my brain, my body, my life, does it belong to me or to some corporation or to the government or perhaps to the human collective? And so who's holding the data? At present, big corporations are holding much of the data and people are becoming worried about it. Uh, But mandating governments to nationalize the data, that's an important piece, Mm -hmm. may curb the power of the big corporations only in order to give rise to digital dictatorships. This is a big propaganda piece that we're reading here that's that's for this whole idea of Mm -hmm. like centralizing data. And so which is the precursor for why Elon Musk then buys, you know, these data mining Mm -hmm. corporations. right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, then not only Elon Musk, you have uh, Zuckerberg with Facebook, right? The whole metaverse thing, you know, and he holds most of the data, too. Again, he probably has more data on me than I have on myself. (laughs) You know, I don't have a single journal, but they probably have a list of things that, you know, and then Zelensky's actions. Yeah. And then the Bureau of Disinformation, mm-hmm. right? So all of these things, they're just, you know, thesis, antithesis, nonsense, right? So, but if, if you're familiar with how historically that has worked, then that become that just jumps off the page when you read it, right? So, yeah. um, so who should wield this type of power going forward, according to uh, Yuval Harari? Well, speaking uh, about politicians, he says, I don't think that we should give these uh, musicians most sophisticated instruments uh, to play on. And I certainly don't think that they are ready to be entrusted with the future of life in the universe, especially as many politicians and government seem incapable of producing meaningful visions of the future. So don't give it to the guys that are over the nation states, by all means. Right? <laughs> They're not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> right. To a lower level for him. Yeah. Right. And so... Uh, so, so who can produce a meaningful vision of the future that we can entrust the future of life with, right? So that question itself is a is a ridiculous question. Nobody's asking you to <laughs> to, to to figure this out. That life is not entrusted in, in, into yeah. these people or. And, and All no, of a sudden, he already put himself as the authority to figure out who right. who who am I going to trust as right. an expert, right? Right. Yeah. So, so only in a God, King, Father, for instance, only the author of life has that ability to make mm-hmm. those decisions. 
And so in that context, um, none of the creation is ours. Mm -hmm. We were just stewards over the creation. Yeah, but I like how they're even hijacking the in intelligent design and all that stuff too. <laughs> right now, everything has to be their version of it, which right, again, right. we, we kind of cover more in the God, King, Father, Friend podcast. Right, yeah. yeah. And so he says, uh, we had better call up, oh, and listen to this. Mm -hmm. We had better call upon our scientists. This is the technocracy, the corporate technocracy, where you get the specialized mm -hmm. uh, scientists, the intellectual uh, elite. As you put it, that's if uh, Fauci was the president right now. <laughs> right. And so we had better call upon our scientists, the philosophers, our lawyers, and even our poets, or especially our poets, to turn their attention to this big question of how do you regulate the ownership of data uh, the future, not just of humanity, but the future of life itself may depend upon the answer to this question. Um, in other words, uh, his fancy speech is simply the turning uh, of the middle class into the peasant class 2.0 um, or, or uh, turning us into catacunim or the domesticated cattle. And so uh, we have a uh, reduction of the population, the ability to control the population entirely, rearrange and alter life itself to fit within this new system. Uh, no control by governments, corporations hold the data. This is the infrastructure for the corporate state that's going to give rise to this global state because mm. uh, purposely seeding ideas that this thing is eventually going to need to be centralized. And we, who are we going to give it to? America? Mm. Do we give it to Russia? Do we give it to China? So nobody's going to be like, yes, give it. So yeah. you're going to need an international governing body that takes it out of the hands of the irresponsible dying, dead, or dying dinosaur mm -hmm, mm -hmm. nation states. Uh, into this new thing, this new polished um, concept of, of global governance that's going to lead to global govern government. government. Mm -hmm. And so so we go through Klaus Schwab's book now, The Fourth Industrial Revolution. Uh, who is Klaus Schwab? Let's get into that. So he's the executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. His Geneva-based World Economic Forum uh, brings together uh, once a year 1,000 chairmen and chief executive of the foremost global companies with another 1,000 world leaders, scientists, and journalists. And so, well, what is the World Economic Forum? Well, the World Economic Forum wants to wants a global redesign to create public-private partnerships with the United Nations in which selected agencies operate and steer global agendas um, under shared governance systems. And so it says that a globalized world is probably best managed by a coalition of multinational corporations, governments, and civil service organizations or CSOs, which it expresses through initiatives like the Great Reset and the Global Redesign. So now, what is the Great Reset? So, the World Economic Forum proposed what's known as the Great Reset, which suggests that the you know globalized world is best managed by a self-selected coalition of multinational corporations, governments, and civil society organizations. Um, well, why would you do something like that? Well, because of what's known as the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Well, what is the Fourth Industrial Revolution? Uh, Jens Martins, in his book, uh, The Role of Public and Private Actors in the Means of Implementing the SDGs, what are these? The Sustainable Development Goals, mm -hmm. Reclaiming the Public Policy Space for Sustainable Development and Human Rights, Part this is part of the Interdisciplinary Studies in Human Rights. Page 209, it says, under the heading, Weakening the State, a Vicious Circle. 
It says, a telling example of this strategy is the report of the World Economic Forum on the future of global governance and redesign. Uh, the report postulates that the globalized world is best managed by a coalition of multinational corporations, governments, including the United Nations system, and select civil society organizations, or, S or CSOs. And so why operate this way? Uh, what problems are they trying to solve? And further down it says, it argues that governments no longer are the overwhelmingly dominant actors on the world stage, and that the time has come for a new stakeholder paradigm of international governance. Okay, so we've heard this before. Mm -hmm. The nation states are, they've reached their maturity. Yeah. They're now past their prime, and it's time for them to go. They serve their purpose. It's time for them yeah. to go. And it's kind of like uh, these are things that we already knew, right? Hey, these are not the people that are, you know, <laughs> in charge. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it yeah. will just be obvious at that point, you know. Right. It's one of those give us another conspiracy theory, this one's solved, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah basically. <laughs> when it finally comes out, yeah. Right. And so now you have this idea. Uh, further down, it argues that governments, again, are, are, are no longer the overwhelmingly dominant actors in the world stage. It's time for them to go. New stakeholder paradigm of international governance. And so, well, what does the World Economic Forum suggest? Well, the World Economic Forum, in their vision, includes a public-private United Nations in which cent uh, certain specialized agencies would operate under joint state and non-state governance systems. Okay, so there, we're going to see the rise of the unelected bodies, mm -hmm. of unelected officials that are making um, not only national but transnational decisions that affect more than one nation Intergovernmental, I think that's the word they use. There you yeah. go. And so, um, well, where can this information be found? Well, everybody's business, uh, strengthening international cooperation in a more interdependent world. Page 9 says... Uh, the time has come for new stakeholder paradigm of international governance analogous to that embodied the stakeholder theory of corporate governance of which the World Economic Forum itself was founded. Okay, uh, well then what do they think should be done? The state-based core of the system needs to be adapted. Mm, they keep harping on this same thing. Nation states. They have to go. Yeah, it's time for you guys to go. But adapted to what? Exactly. Well, to a more complex, bottom-up world in which non-governmental actors have become a more significant force. Hmm. Well, why would you want to do something like this? Well, um, if you're someone like BlackRock, mm -hmm. Blackstone, Vanguard, Vanguard, and you can put your money where your mouth is, then you know you, you're the assets under management by the world's largest asset management companies like BlackRock and Vanguard are upwards of 10 trillion end of 22 that's higher than the gdp of japan and germany and, and most nations mm -hmm. so blackrock is a country uh within its own right without borders without citizens without democracy without any of that stuff but with all the power right right, yeah. <laughs> right. and so page 36 effective global governance requires many others local and national governments private individuals and corporate corporate actors the non-governmental organizations and social networks of civil society, our media, culture, and religious organizations, and more. Well, what does Santa Claus Schwab want, <laughs> Schwab want to do <laughs> um, uh, about this? Well, he says, uh, those who work in all these places must begin to think globally. 
to place the welfare of the global community higher than their priorities. Mm. So you have 400 civil society organizations and 40 international networks heavily criticized a partnership agreement between the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and called for the UN Secretary General to end it. Uh, did he end it? Well, let's see. Uh, the letter called, it's called uh, the Corporate Capture of Global Governance. The World Economic Forum Partnership Agreement is a dangerous threat to the United Nations. Now, now think of this, right? So um, the United Nations was set up by the roundtable organizations uh, to do exactly what this set up, yeah. is set to do, right? So um, so you're asking the, the people that are actually doing this thing that now you've been able to identify, mm -hmm. you're going to ask them to stop doing what they're doing yeah. as if there's some other entity to appeal mm -hmm. to. Yeah, it's like um, asking the government to uh, give up some power. It's like asking a corrupt cop to investigate himself. Yeah. <laughs> right? and, so, and so what what did they outline the problem to be exactly? Well, the first step towards their global governance vision is to redefine the international system uh, consisting as a wider, multifaceted system of global cooperation in which intergovernmental legal frameworks, there it is, and institutions are embedded as core. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now remember the corporate state Dissolving the wealth of the nation state, putting in the legal framework is the question before. Why would these uh, wealthy corporations then just give up all of that wealth? Mm -hmm. They're not because it's being woven. The reason why they're able to do what they're doing is because that aspect is woven into the legal framework of this entire, the, the entire panoply mm -hmm. of the yeah, idea. They're even allowed to get that big because this is the end goal right now. There you go. Right. They're, they're just fulfilling their role. And so, well, um, what do they think the World Economic Forum uh, really wants to do? Well, the goal was to weaken the role of the state in global decision making and to elevate the role of the new set of stakeholders, turning our multilateral system into a multi-stakeholder system. Uh, companies are part of the governing mechanisms. Okay, so what's the big deal? What, what would that do? The, the letter continues. This would bring transnational corporations, selected civil society representatives, states, and other non-state actors together to make global decisions, disregarding or ignoring critical concerns around conflicts of interest, accountability, and democracy. Mm -hmm. Oh, so the unelected body of unelected officials supported by the international legal frameworks by the CSOs and the corporations putting the flesh on the bones mm -hmm. of this international global body. Um, these guys see that as a problem. And yeah, I, I concur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what else? Uh, it doesn't stop there. The public-private partnerships will permanently associate the United Nations with transnational corporations. This uh, is a form of corporate capture. Mm. Well, of course it is. That was the goal. <laughs> and so now imagine you know, reading this letter, knowing that this is exactly why you set mm -hmm. up, and it's, and now there's an outside entity that's able to detail it. Mm -hmm. piece by piece right so this is why you have all this propaganda that the united nations is this peacekeeping organization it just it's just a place for nation states to come together and voice their concerns about global uh, uh common Probably problems mm -hmm. right? that's not that's the the exoteric doctrine right the esoteric doctrine is completely different and so they continue um 
We know that, you know, um, agribusiness destroys biodiversity. What else? Uh, oil and gas corporations endanger the world climate. Uh, what else? Big pharma weakens access to essential medications. <laughs> well, what else? Extract, uh, um, extractive corporations leave lasting damage to countries, uh, ecologies, and people. What else? And that arms manufacturers profit from local and regional wars as well as repression of social movements. And here's the clincher. All of these sectors are significant actors within the world economic mm-hmm. form. The very guys that are saying, hey, we need to save the world from all these polluters mm-hmm. are themselves the biggest polluters that are putting out the propaganda. What did Lenin say? You don't go into a country that you're going to subvert with communism mm-hmm. and tell them how bad capitalism is. Yeah. You become the, the greatest biggest champion for the capitalism. Yeah, yeah. By telling people how bad communism is. Mm-hmm. And when people like the rhetoric, the rhetoric and they elect you to power then you just implement communism but under different terms Mm -hmm. in the capitalist um environment and so well what does the european parliament think uh think tank have to say about this right so we have a, a link here that people can follow so why are they being criticized? Well, uh, the article continues to its proponents. The organization through its meetings enables businesses, NGOs and political leaders to to do what? Well, to meet and deliberate possible solutions to key issues on global concern to its critics. The forum and, ex- and especially its annual meetings are nothing more than an opaque venue for political and business leaders to take decisions or to make decisions without having to account to either their electric or their shareholders. Mm-hmm. And so in November 15, 1999, an article of Schwab says, uh, global companies do not fit behind neat national borders. The sovereign state has become obsolete, says Schwab, uh, as the world resembles um, regional in regional powers. powers, into regional powers. He says, we need a global issue alliance. The interviewer says, you mean global government. Schwab says, that's the last thing we want. (laughs) We facilitate the process of decision making. Right. So now Schwab may not want world government, but there is someone else operating behind Schwab uh, that uh, Schwab fails to mention. And so uh, what would be the purpose then of the World Economic Forum? Let's ask uh, Ittori Gatti Tedeschi. Uh, he's an Italian economist and banker. He's the ex-president of the Institute of World Religion, Works of Religion, also known as Vatican yeah. Bank. And he says in a video that yeah, we can put up uh, later, uh, Tedeschi says, uh, what is it called? He goes, uh, its name is the New World Economic Order. <laughs> well, when was it conceived? It was conceived between the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. Okay. Well, who was its originator? Its originator was Henry Kissinger. At the very beginning, it was a veritable reset. Mm. Okay. Um, What were you trying to do with it? Well, we were trying to correct the mistakes that we have been making uh, for the last 50 years since the very first reset. (laughs) So So learn from the mistakes and build back better. There you go. (laughs) There you go. Right. So, um, well, what was the first reset called? Oh, the, the, that was known as the new world economic order, which was designed in the seventies. And so what was the old new world economic order founded upon? Well, he says it's founded upon a series of facts that ignore natural law, which we can define as not always natural and pretty utopian. After 50 years since the first reset of the 70s, it produced several mistakes. A second reset is needed today. 
And then he reiterates, he says, the current reset, commonly called the Great Reset, is nothing but a correction of the mistakes which we have been making over the last 50 years. So, therefore, thanks to, or rather, taking advantage of, this unfortunate situation called the uh, COVID pandemic, <laughs> there is the possibility to boost, or rather, uh, I will use a strong expression, to impose or cause to be imposed certain behaviors Nevertheless, today, reset is the correction of the mistakes made by yesterday's reset. So it's a great res reset of their system. It's not for us. It's not for everything. It's, this is for them. <laughs> right. Yeah. So let's continue. Mm -hmm. So what was the problem that you were trying to solve then? Well, we had too many births. And as a consequence, uh, the need to decrease the birth rate of the population. Wow. Okay. Then uh, He said it just like that, huh? Not yeah. even hiding at this point. Yeah. Straight up. Right? <laughs> Straight up. So uh, what was the first side effect of, uh, uh, to these policies? Well, it goes, the birth rate dropped, but where? In the Western world. The shrinking of the population took place mainly in the so-called Western world. But that's the ones we need. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, But where in the Western world? Well, the United States and Europe. Why is the population growth supposed to be reduced? And so he provides an answer. Because according to the Neo-Malthusian worldview, mm -hmm. the more people are born, the more people consume, the more people waste, what nature provides for us. And so now we're going to get into this idea of re reducing the population. So um, uh, by another revolution, though. And so just as the Industrial Revolution got it all started with empowering the peasants to become the middle class and an aristocracy, we need a technical revolution that Klaus Schwab turned the fourth Industrial Revolution to destroy the aspects of the Industrial Revolution, created the middle class, and turning the middle class back into the peasant class. Well, how are you going to do this? Well, we're going to do it a few ways. By limiting the amount of people that can actually participate in the job market and so they will create an artificial or synthetic middle class then removing the lifeblood of the middle class altogether their ability to work and create wealth which gave rise to them in the first place mm -hmm. and so well how are you going to do that klaus has already spelled it out by <laughs> ai automation algorithms robot and 3D printing. You know what's the good thing? If they at any time they need inter uh, interruption of that system, they have the the cyber attacks that they're already preparing for. And, right. You know they they want to make sure that they're ready because the next cyber attack could be bigger than compared to that. COVID nineteen would be insignificant. Right. Uh, what did you say? Um, A minor inconvenience. Minor inconvenience. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so he says, remember, it was the, well, we were saying this, remember, mm -hmm. it was the Industrial Revolution that gave rise to the, the commoner uh, that created uh, the middle class. And once they got wealthy, they wanted to participate in their political future. Uh, they won't have that problem with robots. Robots are going to be uh, robots. Mm -hmm. They're going to do exactly what they're told. And so a robot is, you know, it, they'll be there in an assembly line making the next Tesla so you don't have a factory worker that's sitting there that needs to change his shift or go home to be indoctrinated and by CNN. They have these human rights that you can only work a certain amount of hours. You have to give them breaks. You have to pay uh, yeah. some sick pay, this and that. Robots eliminate yeah. all that too. Right? right. 
And so, well, um, what does this next industrial revolution, what does it actually mean? Well, Klaus Schwab, the executive chairman of the World Economic Forum in his book, The Fourth Industrial Revolution, puts it this way, he says on page 14, uh, the first industrial revolution spanned from about 1760 to around 1840, uh, triggered by the construction of railroads and the invention of the steam engine. It ushered in a mechanical production. Okay, got it. Well, you know what happened next? Well, the second industrial revolution was started in the late 19th century until the early 20th century and made mass production possible, fostered by the advent of electricity and the assembly line. Okay, good. Got it. Okay, what happened after that? Well, the third industrial revolution began in the 1960s. It usually is called the computer or the digital revolution because it was it was catalyzed by the development of semiconductors, mainframe computing in the 1960s, personal computing in the 1970s and 80s, and the internet in the 1990s. Great. Got it. So um, what do you think is going to happen next, uh, Santa Claus? Well, <laughs> Santa Claus. <laughs> so I believe that today we are at the beginning of the fourth industrial revolution. It began at the turn of the century. It builds on the digital revolution. Well, what characterizes this fourth industrial revolution then? Well, it's characterized by a much more ubiquitous and mobile internet by smaller and more powerful sensors that have become cheaper and by artificial intelligence and machine learning. Okay. There's a there's a description from the book, you know, that provides a good summary if you read the description of the book. It says Artificial intelligence is already all around us, from supercomputers, drones, and virtual assistants to 3D printing, DNA sequencing, smart thermostats, wearable sensors, microchips and that are small as a grain of sand. What that really means that you're going to take the jobs out of the hands of the middle class so that you can gut the middle class and its wealth and its resources, and, and you can do this uh, with a technological revolution. So what will the next decade look like in this scenario? Well, uh, in the next uh, 20, 40, 50 years, it won't be the immigrants taking the jobs of Americans as it's claimed. Uh, well, what will it be? It's going to be AI, algorithms, robots, and 3D printers. And so it's going to put millions of people out of their jobs. If they're out of their jobs, they can no longer create wealth. If they cannot create wealth, then they will further lose their ability to participate in their political future and be relegated back to the peasant class as they were before if they even exist at all as a subspecies, mm -hmm. according to Yuval Harari. And so, um, well, why will they lose their ability to participate in their political future? Well, because in the corporate state, which uh, is the phase that we're moving towards, corporations control the economic, political, and judicial systems of nation states. And the corporate state will self-select from its own members. Promotion from within, like many corporations do today, and will not be democratically elected. It was never democratically elected. <laughs> right. But now officially. Officially. That's, no more democracy, yes, guys. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so Klaus Schwab, again, executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, in his book, The Fourth Industrial Revolution, uh, page uh, 68, makes it, makes it clear. He says, governments must also adapt to the fact that power is shifting from state to non-state actors and from established institutions to loose networks. Down below, he says, um, with few exceptions, policymakers are finding it harder to effect change. They are constrained by rival power centers, including the transnational, provincial, local, and even the individual. Micropowers are now capable of constraining macropowers, so as, uh, such as national governments. Mm -hmm. 
So again, if you translate that into human, pretty much no more nations and we make decisions. So, yeah. yeah. So what happens if large portions of the population become jobless? Well, you know, the types of jobs that are going to be required in 2050, 2080 are not the same type of jobs that are available now. Um, if that is the case, then the type of training for those new jobs, like creating virtual worlds, will be out of most people's reach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I'm already disqualified. I can't create a virtual world yet. So, and so the idea is like, well, what's going to happen at that point? Well, you get this systematic breakdown of the middle class because they won't be able to participate in the type of jobs that are required. And so, for example, if Amazon completely automates today, AI, algorithms, robots, and self-driving vehicles, and they lay off their current 1.1 million people, or if Walmart with its 2.2 million completely automates today, uh, how long will it take these 3.3 million people to reinvent themselves? Are we going to have 3.3 million new entrepreneurs all of a sudden? Are they going to start their own businesses? Are they going to develop a new skill set? No. And then you say, okay, what if McDonald's lays off 200,000 people? What do they know to do to survive? This type of automation will affect the entirety of, of pretty much every industry. Mm-hmm. Just like the in- Industrial Revolution in- uh, affected all of these yeah. different industries. And potentially... This is just the reversing it, right? Yeah. Right. Control Z. <laughs> right, yeah. And so it will replace not only millions, but billions of employees. This is why you know Elon Musk mm-hmm. recently said when he spoke at the World Government Summit... Yeah. He goes, he's for the universal basic income because all these jobs are going to go away. Mm-hmm. And the type of jobs that people would normally get when they get laid off from, from their current employment status, they're going to go get service level jobs, right? They're going to work at a coffee shop mm-hmm. or at a restaurant. But if all of those automate. Yeah. And these are, you're only talking about companies like in America and stuff like that. Right. Now imagine all the other companies across the world. Yeah. Right, yeah. And so now we have this idea, like, according to uh, Statista.com, there's approximately 3.29 billion employed. Um, uh, And if you reduce all of that by automation, you know, Mm -hmm. if you reduce it by a third, uh, then what do all those people that were previously able to work, but now they can't, and and there's no no traditional jobs available for anybody – what do you what what becomes of these people because you've taken away all the jobs mm-hmm. the carrot and the stick now becomes this universal basic mm-hmm. income and now you no longer will have the opportunity to participate in your political future because the corporate state is in power who are you appealing to mm-hmm. R- right and so well if the jobs uh, are taken away by the robots And the type of jobs that are available, you can't participate in. You will never receive training to participate there, but you still exist. Well, the population needs to be reduced then because Mm -hmm. to have everybody on universal basic income, that's not sustainable. It's it's unsustainable, guys. And what we're trying to do is be sustainable here. So you reduce the population to make the universal basic income concept digestible, Mm -hmm. to make it come to fruition. And so we have this idea, like what we're seeing is the idea of the, you know, the necessity of population to be reduced. Um, If you're thinking about people in terms of their jobs and their contribution to society, uh, then you run, you know, that the whole idea has run its course, like your, your usability in terms of like the, the job market. Um, that has come to an end. Mm-hmm. We no longer need your services. Thank you. The at-will termination is now up. It's time for you to go. And so now, coupled with that is the you know, 1972 book, The Limits to Growth by Dennis Meadows. 
um, that was written, you know, for the Club of Rome. Mm-hmm. Warnings for overpopulation. You get, you know, uh, there is no real function or purpose to the existence in, in the society. And so uh, the useless eaters, as they're called, it's a population that is just consuming resources. They're living longer and they're producing more waste. So this is the idea that you know, one, you don't you're not contributing anymore. Mm-hmm. You you just become a useless eater, consuming more resources, and you're still reproducing yourself, right? We can't have that. Right. So now you have what they would term infinite growth against the finite resource mm-hmm. of the carrying capacity of the earth. You are now the virus that is that is the the problem. Mm-hmm. Right? So uh, we need to vaccinate. <laughs> so the whole idea of that, you know, Gaia is now infected by the useless mm-hmm. eaters, the human population that is parasitic, just living off of, um, mm-hmm. living off of her. Right? So, and so they go, you can make this case for the reduction of the population in favor of a select few mm-hmm. who then, th- th- that are beneficial to society in some way uh, and, and under this idea of we can save mankind as a species and we can save mankind's environment or his ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a, a good uh, place to stop because mm-hmm. um, uh, next we're going to get into um, what the kind of like the this is going to get us on the grounds of like Gaia worship mm-hmm. um, and how they're going to make the transition from um, if if it really is about these two ideas of like saving mankind as a species and saving mankind's environment. Um, then clearly those that aren't contributing anymore, those need to go, they have to go. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, it's a tough decision. And then you're going to get the, you know, the, the writings of Alice A. Bailey, who talks about the world wars. And mm-hmm. she's like, a lot of people look at that as like a bad thing. We look at it like a, in using the we language, mm-hmm. uh, we look at it as like a, um, a surgeon yeah. who's yes, you know, you injure the, the body when you go to cut out a cancer, but you know, that injury compared to what that uh, cancer is doing mm-hmm. to you. Um, it's it, the necessary evil idea, right? Right. Yeah. Greater good, lesser mm-hmm. evil, right? So, um, and, and when you look at like, yes, it, it, and you shouldn't look at these people as dying as a bad thing. You should look at it as like life itself gets to go on. The, the, the idea is that you're preserving life, mm-hmm. not the form of life yeah. in this human being, but life itself gets to continue. And so we'll 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 pick up that um, after the or in the next podcast. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, I think we're right about an hour already, so it's a perfect spot. Uh, that being said, thank you everybody for watching. If you watch yep. all the way to the end, um, like, comment, share. Uh, we read all the comments. We appreciate all the likes, all the shares, and all that stuff too. Yep. Uh, you can support us directly by going to patreoncom slash podcast mm-hmm. or theiconiclabel.com where you can get yourself a cool merchandise, some yep. cool like hats, hoodies, t-shirts. We have all that yep. stuff. Anything um, else? Uh, patreoncom slash theiconicpodcast mm-hmm. if you want to support us financially. Yeah. Um, and all the other uh, w- uh, websites were there. All the other social media. Yeah. Um, we're gonna try to be everywhere until they start kicking us out one by one. Or if we stay there, even better. You yeah, know. Yeah. So you can find us everywhere, pretty much everywhere, by yeah. just looking up the iconic podcast. Or if not, uh, who.be/iconic is our link tree, and it has most of them in there. At least all the the main ones. And um, if this podcast is too long, I mean, I guess I'm saying it at the end. So if you stay t- <laughs> towards the end, <laughs> you're good. But you can get the uh, highlights version of them at the iconic uh, highlights. It's a channel on the YouTube. Yep. Yeah. 
So we'll cut up smaller, even tinier bite sizes mm-hmm. that go on uh, Instagram. Yeah, yeah, Instagram, TikTok, and then yeah. I think YouTube Shorts too. Right, yeah. yeah, even easier to share and all that stuff. Too. Yep. Yeah.